And I'm like, okay, so me talking about how wonderful my life is, is making you uncomfortable. That doesn't sound like a me problem. That sounds like a you problem. Welcome to the podcast that celebrates the contribution of diverse people to British stand-up comedy past and present. I'm Sophie Quirk. And I'm Ollie Double. Who have we got on the podcast today, Sophie? Today we're talking to Tanya Lee Davis, who we interviewed in June 2022 via Zoom. She was in the USA where she was sat on a porch, which reminded Ollie of the Waltons and made me think that maybe Jessica Fletcher lives next door. Um, She talks largely about her time performing in the UK and also Unstoppable Me, her gorgeous life-affirming policy to approaching life and work. Um, Because it's via Zoom, there is a little bit of quacking on the line, so apologies for that. But enjoy this. I know you will. It was really ace. So, hi, my name's uh, Tanya Lee Davis. I am currently 51 years old, but I started doing comedy when I was 19 years old. Uh, January 23rd of 1990, I started doing comedy in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. And ha- have you been performing continuously since you started? Yeah, I started in that, uh, yeah, in the 90s, and I started getting paid three months in and started touring throughout Canada. And, you know, Canada is such a massive country that, you know, you really had to go far distances to get gigs for very little money so yeah I've been a road comedian I've basically put in my dues as they say over the last 32 years and yep I've been able to afford to uh, pay my bills and feed my family and have adventures all over the world so in my books that's a success that is indeed a success I okay uh, there's things there that I want to double click on right but the first thing I wanted to ask is I mean you've sort of answered this to some extent already but I think every comedian has an origin story what brought them to it and how it played out you've hinted at that really in your last (laughs) reply but what's your origin story okay well I mean I grew up in Canada and uh uh Back then, it was, you know, parenting was putting your child in front of the TV. Uh, So I grew up watching American sitcoms. And also I got influenced by British comedies. Uh, Laurel and Hardy, Danny Kaye, absolutely loved Danny Kaye, Peter Sellers. You know, I I loved physical comedians. I uh, watching uh, Robin Williams. I grew up watching American sitcoms and Lucille Ball, Carol Burnett. And I loved... I love, I wanted to be a comedic actress. That's what I grew up, even from a young age, I remember putting on my little, uh, I had a little chalkboard in my room and I put my name with a star. I, I was like, you know, I want to be an actress. I didn't know that stand-up comedy even existed. And it wasn't until I graduated from high school where my, you know, my family was like, you need to go to university so you can get a real job. But I'm like, I want to be an actress. No, you need to go to university. So I'm like, aha, well, I'll study theater. Not realizing when you go to university, you actually have to study theater. And I'm like, but I just want to perform. I was doing, I started doing community theater, children's theater. And I got the lead in the first production I ever auditioned for. I was Perry the Penguin, uh, typecasting in its finest. I started dating a guy in the production. He played the villain and apparently had a thing for penguins. Yippee. So he invited me down to a comedy club. I'd never been to a comedy club before. It was an open mic. He was performing and he was terrible. For whatever reason, I instinctively knew what he was doing wrong. Like his timing was off. He wasn't kind of abiding by the rules as far as the light and this and this. When he got off stage, I was like, oh my God, you're 
crap. And he's like, you think you can do better? And I was like, nah, yeah. And uh, so he got me a comedy book. And then I went up the first time and I did really well my first uh, shot. So the management asked me to come back two weeks later. Then my mother showed up with the neighbors and my cousins. So there was people in the audience that I actually knew this time. So I heard somebody I knew laugh. And it completely threw me off. And I was like, you know, just lost it on stage. So they were like, well, good thing you gave it a shot. It was nice that you tried, you know. But anyway, three months later, I was getting paid and uh, I was off to the races. So I haven't looked back since. It's interesting, actually, that thing about being seen by family. I mean, you know, I used to do doing stand up used to be my job. And, and uh, I always found that having one person who'd never seen you before was enough to make it more of a high stakes gig, which often sometimes made you less good than you would have been. I prefer performing to strangers, you know, but yeah, when there's somebody that you do know, you feel like, oh, you got a little something more to prove. Actually, nowadays, I don't really don't care. <laughs> 51, my give F button is broken, so. One of the things we want to do with this podcast is celebrate the contribution that diverse performers have made to and are making to the art of stand-up so with that in mind what do you think makes your work distinctive in terms of subject matter material performance style and so on well um my act has actually changed quite a bit just within the last couple of years with this lockdown situation i've always i guess had stories in my comedy set but now i realize i'm a storyteller and since the lockdown i've taken to social media and i go live on tiktok and another app called clapper now i'm starting facebook lives a little bit more regularly where i'm doing two to six hours a day just sitting here talking to people and answering questions so so I've learned a lot about myself. I've learned a lot about the world because you can learn a lot about people by the questions they ask, right? So I've incorporated a lot of that into my show now. So I have been doing at comedy clubs in the United States now. It's different than in the UK where you do 20 to 30 minute sets. When I'm headlining, I do I do at least an hour. The one club I did an hour and 25 minutes. And because I just get carried away because I'm, I'm telling stories about my life and all my travels because people look at me as a three foot, three inch dwarf and think, oh, your life must be so difficult, so challenging. I'm like, listen, don't feel sorry for me. I've had an amazing life. Yes, of course I've had challenges, but who hasn't? But I'm not going to focus on what I can't do i'm going to focus on what i can do and i'm that's what i'm here to tell you people so my act now has turned into more of an autobiography of my life and and how i see the world right now and like i mentioned earlier about i believe people are putting themselves in boxes now it's all about i've got this mental health problem i've got this you know they list off anxiety depression and they just you know it's like a menu and people seem to be reveling in it and I, that hurts my heart because I got this tattoo on my arm. I don't know if you can see it. It says unstoppable me. It's quite pronounced and it's become, we have 10 people online that actually have this tattoo now or not this one, but their version of it because it's a very powerful, it's a mindset and it's believing that my size does not identify, does not define who I am. It doesn't matter what size, height, weight, color, gender, you know, religion, planetary affiliation, mental health stat. If people keep putting themselves in boxes you're not opening yourself up you know you're limiting yourself so that's what I talk about in my comedy now so it's almost turned into comedy slash motivational TED talks <laughs> and that's what really sets me apart right now and I feel like after 32 years 
in the business that I'm real now. I'm in the pocket. I'm doing exactly what I'm meant to be doing to inspire and motivate and give people a giggle at the same time. So I'm very happy with my show. That's such a good answer. And also just to say before I hand over to Sophie that um, Unstoppable Me is such a good catchphrase. It's so about positivity and empowerment. I think that's really brilliant. If you could have something permanently tattooed on your skin, then that's a good one. My dad was like, well, that's a little like kind of hardcore and and because it takes up my entire forum. And I'm like, it's a statement. It is a statement. You know, I show it on stage. I show it online and people ask me about it in public. And I'm like, this is it. This is because it means something and everybody can be an unstoppable me. You just it's an attitude adjustment. I think also just worth picking up on the fact that that attitude has continued throughout, but also this sort of change towards a more storytelling style is really positive things happened in lockdown, you know, a time that was so hard for so many people. Well, that's it. I mean, there's two sides to every coin. You can look at the glass half full or half empty. I mean, obviously the lockdown affected us all greatly in so, you know, in terrible ways. But I look at it now like, wow, it was a rebirth for me. It gave me time. I was living in the UK uh, for the first four months of lockdown. And I didn't realize how sort of A, beat down I was, B, stressed out and like as I was nonstop. Because over there, I mean, Ollie probably knows that I, my, my train journeys, trying to get from gigs to gigs with the trains and the mobility scooter, I was always against resistance. You can't do that. You're disabled. You can't go there. You're handicapped, disabled. You're why are you by yourself. And that I didn't realize beat me down so much until the lockdown. And then I moved away and moved to Florida where I was able to, well, I couldn't travel and I couldn't work. So I was just sitting talking to people and then I realized wow I lost my sparkle and that's when the whole unstoppable me thing revelation happened I was like my entire life I've had this mindset but over the last four years over in the UK unfortunately it, it literally got beaten out of me in a way mentally and yeah but I'm back <laughs> those, those, sorry that just very briefly those those videos of you having um altercations with people on trains are incredibly upsetting to watch it's, it's really vicious discrimination. And I just, I don't understand. I mean, I've traveled all over the world and I've only encountered that in the UK. And it's such a shame. I kinda, and I love your country. You know, the audiences are phenomenal. The comedy scene, I just, you know, but that is just, for my friends that have disabilities in the UK, I, I my heart aches for them because I'm like, wow. I mean, lots of my friends in the UK with disabilities have achieved greatness but you know ugh, despite that constant push down and I don't know what it is I mean it's one thing that's really really heartbreaking about those videos of you encountering discrimination on trains in the UK is that you look as you've just described there so kind of defeated and and beaten down by yeah. it I've never subscribed to the victim mentality and now I realized just even in the last couple of weeks that that, yeah, that's, I turned it, they made me feel like a victim and I never want to feel like that again. And I'm not going to let somebody take my, my power away, my sparkle, my shine, my unstoppable me, because no, I mean, nobody has that right especially when it's just, you know, localized where it's like, no, I know that this can happen. I've been other places, you know, it doesn't have to be like that, but you guys are choosing 
you're choosing to fall back on health and safety or whatever excuses to not help. I got a bad back. I don't want to get out of my taxi, even though I have a ramp. Yeah, you have a ramp in your car for people with mobility issues. Oh, yeah, but we can't take the scooters. But it's smaller than most wheelchairs, you know, but there's always an excuse. And it was every day. And it's just, you know, like I said, things happen for a reason. The universe has a plan. And now that I'm out on the other the other side of it, man, you know, nothing's stopping me now. So it was an experience that I didn't want to have, but I'm glad I did because once again, you can take things on board. You can learn from them. You can either let them eat you up or you can learn from them and and move on and create a better existence. And that's what I've done. Brilliant. I mean, that's that's such a wonderful, inspiring, (laughs) just kind of perspective on life. Thinking about your acts, obviously, Ollie and I are probably both more familiar with the work you were doing before lockdown than since, really. But yes. some things that we kind of noticed about you as a performer. It's so interesting to hear that you're you were really inspired by kind of physical comedy because something that was really noticeable to both of us was how physical your style is. That often the joke or the punchline has no words or doesn't rely solely on words so do you think of yourself as a a physical comedian well being being three foot three inches tall obviously uh, quite small and a lot of venues either don't have stages or the room is quite big and back in the day when I was a lot more agile I used to stand on a chair but I have back problems so I would have to lean against the back of the chair to sort of take the pressure off my back well now that I'm older and stuff's starting to break down I noticed when I would perform at theaters I could just sit on my little step stool and I realized that I had more freedom You know, I could kick my legs up. I can move my, you know, arms around more. And I I wouldn't get as tired during my set. So I could use my energy more and my physicality. And because I'm quite confined to a limited space, regardless, because I'm not running around the stage, I try to make my gestures and I literally act out a lot of my bits, which takes them to the next level. And I think people are really appreciative. People like to watch little people move because we've got interesting bodies and different arms and stuff. You know, it's, I am fully aware that people are interested in the way I look and my physicality. And so I play on to that, you know, mm. it's curiosity. It's a natural human, you know, reaction. And I'm going to give them a show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, can I, can I just skip in there just very briefly? One of the things that I I don't think I'd ever quite realised it as much as, as looking at some footage in prep for this, but you does it in the best possible way, there's a real kind of vaudevillian feeling about your act. There's the physicality, there's the, you know, even the way you just said, give you a show, you know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of, there's something delightfully kind of, you know, like, like from vaudeville or variety theatre about what you do. I've done a couple of like burlesque type shows and stuff where, you know, I mean, yeah, I would love to sort of host something like that where, you know, welcome to the big tent, you know, like a Spiegel, Spiegel world or something. And to pick up, actually, this isn't sort of the same vein, but to pick up on a couple of other things we noticed, we noticed that you're incredibly glamorous uh, and glitzy, um, <laughs> but also that you're pretty saucy in your humour. So can you just like say a bit about those qualities as well? 
<laughs> well, I mean, uh, I think I might get my glamour from my mom. She's always been a bit of a, you know, diva that way. You know, I started wearing flowers in my hair a couple of years ago, and it's become now my trait. I have a little, I have t-shirts with like a little animated version of me with a flower in the hair. And, you know, I'm the dwarf diva. I've always noticed when, like I said, back to the people are curious about the way I look, but it's interesting that I think people could never imagine being comfortable. Like if they were in my body, they could never imagine being comfortable in my skin. Right. But I don't know any different. So I'm going to work with what I got and I'm going to make the best of it. And I've lost a stone and a half since I moved from the UK. So that's significant. I'm moving a lot better. So now I'm wearing like like cute little leggings that I get at Walmart or at you formerly Asda. You know, they've got some really cute shorts. So, you know, I'm just, I'm working. I've lost my boobs, unfortunately. That's what happens when you lose a lot of weight, but I still got my booty. So I'm working that, um, you know, and this is it. I get up. That's part of my show without even having to really mention it is body positivity and it's owning, but that's the unstoppable way as well. It's owning what you've got and making the best of it. This is it. We don't know how long we've got and I'm going to own it and hopefully inspire and motivate people to be comfortable in their own skins. Cause if you can't love yourself, how's anybody else supposed to love you? Yeah. I guess I'm a little bit glamorous. And as far as the saucy part, yeah, I've always been a bit of a potty mouth. Uh, this is sort of the, <laughs> this is the, this is the, what do you call it? Dichotomy. I love working with children and I, you know, I worked in the UK with Great As You Are, which is an anti-bullying campaign. I would go into schools in Norfolk and Suffolk uh, showing slides and talking about my life to inspire, motivate kids. But, you know, I, at night I'm telling sort of dick jokes. So it's hard not to cuss and stuff. Sometimes I get in trouble because I just, I'm, you know, I go on autopilot and stuff flies out of my mouth. So but I like my saucy side. So if people that don't like that type of language, it's like, okay, well, there's that, but then there's also my other message. So, you know, look at the, my quality of my content versus sort of just some of my bad language. I'm cute. I get away with a lot more as well. <laughs> <laughs> well I think that's really true, right? That if you have quite a kind of cute persona, there's firstly something very funny um, about you being raunchy or talking about sex or something like that um, or being as you say a potty mouth but but yeah also you you do seem to get away with it <laughs> I know that's been living in Florida well now that I've got white hair I fit in very well in Florida but you know I used to do shows and there's a lot of retirement communities around here so you know they they're a little bit more conservative and they don't like the bad language. But yeah, I call them out on them. I'm like, you people have been around a lot longer than me. You've seen a lot more stuff. I know you've been into it. Come on. You know, and then they're like, yeah, yeah it's fun. It's also, I mean, there's something delightful about your sort of flirtatiousness with the audience. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I, I always pick some young guy <laughs> in the audience. I'm like the dirty old lady kind of thing now. And, or, you know, just, yeah, it gives them a, you know, makes them smile. So it's fun. You've mentioned disability and you've mentioned age as things where you can do something really kind of positive with the audience to be like, you might have preconceptions about my comfort in my own body, but I'm going to show you that they're wrong. Are there also challenges to dealing with an audience's assumptions or, or where they might feel confronted by those things? 
Well, once again, uh, unfortunately, the United Kingdom, <laughs> I had to really change when I first, so I did my first Edinburgh in 2003. I got picked up by a manager and I started touring in 2004. And, you know, once again, my act, because I talk so much about me and my life, it, my act transcends racial, geographical, gender barriers. So I'm lucky in that regard. However, I noticed in the UK, because so many people were uncomfortable with disability, what I would get on stage, I would have people turn their chairs away from the stage or, you know, come up to me afterwards and go, you were really funny, but you made me feel very uncomfortable. Oh. And I was like, and I'm like, Okay, so me talking about how wonderful my life is, is making you uncomfortable. That doesn't sound like a me problem. That sounds like a you problem. So that was one thing I encountered quite a bit. And so I kind of had to change my intro a little bit when I started getting more comfortable on stage in the UK, really just going, you know, look at me. Look at me. Come on, everybody. I know. Ooh, aren't you uncomfortable? Yes, you are. You know, so now I just call them out on it and they're like, ah, okay. <laughs> you know, and then eventually, hopefully they get over it. But yeah. people, like I said, that it's a, it's a weird mindset over there. So people just, you know, they feel like, oh, we're laughing at you, not with you. And I'm like, that's the wrong attitude. You're not coming into this thinking that I'm just a regular Joe that has, just happens to be a little bit shorter. You are like, she's handicapped. She's limited in her abilities. We shouldn't be dis discussing it. We should be ignoring it. The little white elephant in the room does not exist. I'm like, no, we exist. <laughs> I'm coming at you. I think one of the things that I think is really strong about your act is your 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 accounts of experiences that we that people who are not little people might might not know about so for example the changing room in in a shop the door not reaching the right height for, for yep, your coming up, privacy. coming up my boobs yeah right oh, that. but also the kind of dickhead things that people say to you as well um yep. were you born that size i'm like uh slightly smaller <laughs> <laughs> I mean, given that it's likely that a lot of the people who are watching you won't have shared those experiences, what are the kind of challenges of using that kind of material to, to connect with an audience? Well, like, like I said, I, I'm very aware how people see me and how are initially uncomfortable. And nowadays, because, you know, like, we don't want to, I don't want to offend you. I'm like, listen, I'm old school. You can't offend me. You know, I don't get caught up with the certain terminology, you know, the PC terms. I'm all about context. People yell things from their cars, you know, they'll yell midget. You know, I've been called a lot worse than that, too. So it's like it's all about context. Because I am aware of how people see me, I really like to address those and just put it out there and be like, yes, OK, I get you uncomfortable, you know, with people with children. I love when kids come up to me and go, what's wrong with you? Why are you small? But the look on some parents' faces are like, oh, I'm so sorry. But it's like, but they're a kid. 
right? Kids are not born with prejudices or, you know, being racist or homophobic, right? It's a learned behavior. So if your child comes up to me and is curious, that's awesome because then I, I can tell that from my experience, yeah, isn't it cool? I got a scooter. I'm smaller. I mean, sometimes I'll say I didn't eat my vegetables, so you better eat <laughs> But I like that engagement and I, I tell the parents, thank you for letting the, your child, but then there's parents and especially in the UK, grabbing their kids mm. away, like, don't look, don't stare. And it's like, but why can't they? It's that's a natural human reaction. And I had a woman at the wedding train station. I'll never forget this. I was super tired. I was waiting for my train. I was kind of sitting outside at one point and I hear a kid talking about me and I'm just, you know, whatever. And then I go into this train station. I hear the same kid's voice. I'm on my scooter like this. And I hear this kid's voice. See, mommy, she has short arms. And I kind of turns to look. And this woman smacked her kid across the face. It was like rocky. It was just like bush, bush, bush. And I was like, whoa, I was waiting for her to come to me. And I was like, what a horrible reaction that was. Because for one thing, guess what, lady? I've got short arms. So he's correct. Why would you punish your child for acknowledging my existence and being accurate when clearly she had her own prejudices? But that right there is why we need to instill in our children to accept the difference is people in wheelchairs and scooters and little people, tall, really tall people, like any differences. If kids go in there going, oh, yeah, then they just get used to it. But it's it's adults screw it up. <laughs> We're messing up our children because they got, you know, you got your own prejudices. Yeah, um, yeah interesting to hear that put so starkly into context of the UK having a particular yeah. problem in that regard. Um, on behalf of the UK, <laughs> I apologize. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. This is, this doesn't come across not a uk bashing session just putting it out there but this has been my experiences and i think it's you know i need to put it out there yeah but what we're interested in is the uk context primarily so i think that this is really really pertinent to to kind of what we what we're looking at and what we want to talk about but it's also really interesting because legally the, the the equality act is supposed to make all these kind of treatments that you were experiencing illegal i mean particularly on trains you know with being asked to move when you're in the perfectly entire place yeah. you're perfectly entitled to have your scooter and so on absolutely i mean when that train guard basically you know uh, I was I had my scooter parked in the wheelchair space. I was not allowed to sit in it. So I sat across the aisle. My husband was directly in front of the scooter. Uh, there was no room for people's bags except for a little compartment. So I was like, you know, if anybody wants to put their suitcases on the scooter, you know, I'm not sitting there. So they piled up some stuff. Then an hour into the journey, next thing you know, the guard's like, you need to move your scooter because there's a woman with a baby pram coming on. And she can't hold her child because she had a bandage on her arm. And I was like, but this is the disabled spot. Yeah, she's got a bandage on her arm, but that doesn't make her disabled. But anyway, I basically got forced to move out into what I call the vestibule area between the two trains. And he, because my husband and I were trying to stand up for ourselves, he threatened to call the police. He stopped the train and then announced to everybody on the train that the late that we were going to be indefinitely delayed in Taunton because the lady in the mobility scooters causing problems and videotaping him and threatening to put it on the Internet, which I did. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's how that all blew up. But it was just it was just I couldn't believe it was whatever 2018 or 19 at the time that 
this was happening in yeah. this day and age and that I had absolutely no rights as a human being and it just was disgusting okay. and I tried to advocate I tried so hard to advocate for people in the UK with the scooter girl campaign I you know so many of the train companies were like oh yeah Tanya you're gonna you know we're gonna do this we're gonna do that I was on their news shows with them and they were patting me on the back yes Tanya Lee's gonna trial this app Tanya Lee's gonna do this with us as soon as the cameras turned off nothing changed. They didn't even acknowledge me. In fact, at one point they tried to, I tweeted sort of a joke that could have been seen in poor taste clearly, but you know, I'm a comedian and it had to do with train stuff. So they were like, oh, I can't believe you're making fun of this. And oh, you know, and tried to make me look like a, a bad person all of a sudden. I'm like, oh, it's because now I'm a problem because I'm not going away. I had the victim mentality, but no, no more. Given that like, UK context of people being not only discriminatory but as you say kind of unwilling to acknowledge look at discuss disability do you think it's you know well okay I'll go say I think I think it's profoundly doing some good if you are out there talking about but also joking about your experience and particularly because you're you're sort of doing this through comedy um would you agree with that well, absolutely. Comedy and laughter is so essential. The famous Bob Hope used to take massive comedy shows over to the military zones because those people over there fighting, you know, and it didn't matter what's the U.S. or, you know, like anybody over there fighting for their country is seeing a lot of crazy crap. They needed to bring comedy in to give them something, a release, right? Because when you laugh, it releases endorphins, happy hormones. And a lot of comedians, it's therapy. Uh, they have the tragedy and the theater mask they're combined because so many comedians are depressed people and they you know this is the way that they can get out there and 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 throw their problems out there and uh, you know hopefully you know share their experiences so somebody else can relate yeah laughter is so important in in those situations that I've that I've got into sometimes it's like you you gotta wait a while to find the humor in it i was started joking about the train during my sets in the uk because it's like yes i need people to know that this is happening but yeah i mean i am going to use my sense of humor because that's what i do you know it may seem in poor taste perhaps to you but sorry you know it's gonna resonate with some people and that's a coping mechanism for a lot of comedians is uh, just putting the stuff out there, good and bad. Yeah, it's interesting. People sometimes say, oh, a comedy can't change anything. But, well, you look like you're about to shake your head. So why don't you pick up from there? <laughs> I, I believe that my comedy is changing a lot of people's attitudes. So, I mean, that's where I'm in right now with me personally. So I'll speak for that because I know right now my show, like I said, is the best I've got. And people coming up to me after my show is just going, wow. Like we love comedy shows, but this was something else. This was another level and they come out invigorated and inspired. And, you know, so I feel like I myself am changing lives with comedy and uh, yep. I'm going to continue to do so. I just want to pick up um, finally before I have back over to Ollie. So you've mentioned that the UK is a particularly 
difficult country to navigate around on trains and presumably other public transport could be equally disappointing. In terms of when you actually get to the venue that you're going to be performing, definitely lots of comedians with disabilities in the UK have complained of venues being particularly kind of difficult to access. Has that been your experience in the UK as well? Yes, absolutely. I mean, a lot of comedy shows are in pubs, upstairs in pubs, downstairs in pubs, you know, and having a mobility scooter, sometimes I can't even get the scooter into the building. So I pull up to a door. I've got to get in. I'm by myself. I just got off a train. I scooted from the train station. I get to the venue, but I can't get into the venue and there's nobody around. So I've got to like start calling and say, hey, I'm outside. Can you send somebody out? Is there a way to, for me to get in? Can we lift the scooter in? Can we put the scooter somewhere? Then I'm like, I need two people, strong people that can pick me up under the armpits. But now I've, you know, since I've been picked up so many times up and downstairs in the UK, my right shoulder now has been dislocated so many times. Like I'm having, you know, I'm, I'm basically like a broken wing now. And uh it takes its toll on my physical being, you know, and then it's like, okay, I'm going to need, I'm going to need a table on stage because there's no stage. So in the performance area, I'm going to need a table so that I can put my step stool on top of the table so that I can be seen. Because, you know, if you look at a person, an average height person standing there at the microphone, you can maybe see them from the chest up if you're at the back of the room. Well, I like to be seen from head to toe. So put me on a high table, then I got to get lifted up onto that too. So, you know, there's a lot of logistics to deal with. And it's like, I just want to show up and perform. Wouldn't that be nice? Just walking in and be like, all right, I'm here. There's a lot of extra tidbits you got to deal with in the UK. And, you know, I try not to turn down any venues, uh, but that's one thing. Yeah. Is the venue accessible? Is the venue, you know, okay, what can we do to help me when I get there? And yeah, put the ducks in a row. Because I mean, legally, every venue in the UK should be getting itself as close as humanly possible to the situation where you do just show up and perform. But given that we're so far from that ideal, have you had to sort of develop a load of practices that I mean, you say you take a step stool with you to places and are you contacting people? Are you, is there like an extra layer of admin you're having to contact in advance and say, provide a table, make sure I can get into your building? Yep, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, just booking all the hassle booking the trains. You know, like I work maybe Thursday, Friday, Saturday, but then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'd be trying to set up booking assistance for the train, even though they most of the time they never show up. You you should have booked assistance. I did book assistance. I spent nearly an hour online with you on the phone with you people, and then nobody shows up. So there's all that. And then, yeah, like you just said, listed off all that extra stuff. And it's like, by the time I get there, I'm like, okay, let's do this. It is what it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so you've kind of answered this one already, but um, I, but I'm going to ask it anyway because there might be one or two extra things you want to say. What what were your influences when you started out? So, what what comedians were you watching when you first started doing stand up? You mentioned Robin Williams and people. Yeah, yeah, like the physical comedians. Like, well, I mean, the thing is, is I, even now I don't really watch stand up. I mean, I like to watch and support my friends, and I'll watch little clips here and there online, but I don't study other comedians because I just want to do my I want to be original I don't you know sometimes you I like I've heard people do jokes and I'm like I've done a joke similar to that but it's like parallel thinking but I don't even know who this person is but you you know I don't that's why I don't do topical stuff because then you'll tend to overlap but there's been some you know I'm just my fear of of copying somebody or you know unintentionally so yeah in that regards 
but yeah, I, yeah, I just, I'm kind of one of those where I believe that there's a place for me in this entertainment world and I am breaking the mold for just what I do. And uh, yeah. Strangely enough, you're not the first person to say that about, you know, not wanting to watch other, other people because, you know, you, you want to do your own thing. I, I, I don't know if this question is irrelevant now, but I'm going to, I'm going to try it out anyway. Let's see. <laughs> when you do watch other comedians, do you see your own experience, ref, you know, reflected in other people's work? Or, or do you think, you know, your, your stuff is really out there in terms of that? When I do watch other comedians, I, you know, I watch their stage presence. I wait. I watch how they transition or listen how to they transition between jokes and, you know, their timing and that sort of thing. Just as I mean, there's so many different styles. Right. So I appreciate when I see somebody with a completely different style and how they own it. And so that, you know, that's those are the things I do watch or pay attention to when I do watch other comedians. Thank you. That's that's really interesting. Now, you mentioned before that you're married. Have there been any challenges uh, sort of balancing home life with a, a stand up career? Well, yes. Um, my husband, okay, so I'll go into my crazy love story. My husband and I met online in the mid 1990s, back when the Internet started. So I was living in Canada, moving down to California. He was on the completely opposite coast, the East Coast in North Carolina. He was a single dad. He was working hard labor jobs. Uh, we met online. We had a big meetup at a place called Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and I was performing. And so we met and was on like Donkey Kong. And uh, we were together for about a year and a half. We went our separate ways because he couldn't leave where he lived and I was trying to break into show business. So we married and divorced other people after we separated. Uh, we had a 14 year break and then Facebook brought us back together and we're almost coming up on 10 years and we got married in uh, 2021 uh, in February. So fairly recent. My husband is, the reason why I fell in love with him is because he's from the country. He's he, great foundation, you know, great values. A uh, very solid individual, uh, you know, and his love for his son, you know, and me being a, do um, a daughter of an airline pilot. My parents got divorced when I was young. I've traveled all over the world. I've always been quite transient. We are literally completely opposites, my husband and I. We are the, the city mouse and the country mouse. But I understand the whole uh, opposites track thing. The issue is I travel for a living and I love to travel. My husband hates to travel and is not a big fan of people. But he <laughs> loves me. He loves me and he believes in everything that I do. And he loves my comedy and he loves what I, you know, the unstoppable me. So he has sacrificed a lot by and, and his own physical well-being because he's the one that's got to lift a scooter in and out and carry my bags and all this kind of stuff begrudgingly because he loves me in that sense now I have to I'm, right now we don't really live anywhere we're just we're in Florida right now this afternoon we're actually going to be driving up to another state to Georgia and we're literally bouncing from place to place in between my gigs right now because the rental prices and everything are so crazy and right now I've kind of trying to let the universe decide where we're going to go and he is freaking out because that's not how he operates he likes to have keys in his pocket to a door that he can open to a bed he knows he's going to well right now that's not the case so he's like ah so i'm like just bear with me hopefully you know my master plan whatever i don't know what it is but the universe will provide a plan for us and hopefully you know i'll find a balance where if i can work two weekends 
a month and two weekends at home, or at least a home where he can stay by a lake where he can fish, then we've got the balance we need. So that's, it's gonna be interesting. Thank you, that's an amazing answer. I've just got a couple <laughs> more questions. Uh, the, 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 the next question is how diverse do you think the comedy industry is? And do you think that's changed since when you started? I think the comedy industry has absolutely changed over the, I mean, 32 years, you can only imagine how much has changed, but especially just within the last five to eight years, like I said, people being offended. I would hate to be starting out in comedy right now because you got it feels like you got to walk on eggshells. Luckily, like I said, having the seniority now when my give a F button is broken, I don't care. You know, for the people that are starting out nowadays, yeah, it's just, you, you got to find your own voice and, uh, um, Okay, I lost. I lost the question again. I went on a spiral there. It was a oh, question. It was just, again. It was just a, how diverse do you think comedy is? Oh yeah, yeah. So as I've noticed um, online when I'm flipping through, there's a lot more comedians with like talking about mental health issues and ADHD and you know talking about those things, which back in the day were never really addressed. So I think that's good. But once again, I'm hoping that those particular people are not you know, defining themselves by that one characteristic, you know, yes, I'm a little person. I do talk about my height, but I use, it's all about inspiring and showing you, yes, despite this, I have still lived an amazing life and continue to do so. That's my only concern with people with the diversity thing. I love the fact that, yeah, there's a lot more people out there with cerebral palsy out there doing comedy and various stuff. So yeah, it's great ethnic diversity you know even uh, gender stuff you got more trans comedians now and and it's becoming more accepted and it's great because we need different viewpoints right and we need to be able to laugh at those people with them you're not laughing at the trans person you're laughing at the trans person talking about their experiences this is what people get have to get their heads around you know comedians are putting themselves out there and if they're going to talk about you know, what makes them unique, then they're obviously comfortable with that. And if you've got an issue with it, it's your issue, not theirs. The audience, I think, needs to take some responsibility to go into a comedy show wanting to have fun and not having prejudices or things that restrict their mindset. It's really about picking up on that that thing you've referred to a couple of times about how kind of the overuse of labels seems to you like something that that could be damaging you've just articulated really well there these things are so helpful if you're talking about a kind of a perspective that might be unfamiliar to some audiences and doing it really positively on the flip side what do you think are the dangers of that kind of context where I guess what you're talking about is not so much more diversity but the way in which people are talking about diversity or yeah. Uh, well, I think it's just people getting overly offended. Like that, I mean, uh, yeah, it's the world right now. And I think it's just all like, it's that victim mentality and everybody believes that their problems are more significant than other people's problems. I don't know if this is answering that question or not, but, you know, I just... I think people just need to lighten up because I, you know, I think maybe it's because of the internet and social media. It's like, we're more aware of what's happening on in other people's bedrooms across the world. 
you know, I'm more concerned about them and what they're doing in their personal lives as, as opposed to keeping themselves and their immediate surroundings in check, if that makes sense. And so that relates in the whole scheme to going out in public and interacting and, and socializing and going to comedy shows and stuff like that. It's like, you know, you need, it's, you need to take care of yourselves and make yourself happy and be the best person because when you're when you're in that mindset you want other people to be happy and you can acknowledge other people's differences and be so much more accepting when you're like well i'm happy with me i want you to be happy with you i don't care who you sleep with what color you are what shape you are just do it you know and just resonate and just try to put a positive dent in the world uh, i have one more question to ask which is what do you think needs to change for the comedy industry to become still more diverse? What, in other words, what are the barriers to, to diversity in the comedy industry? Well, I think what I found, this is the problem because, you know, the whole now we got to have certain minorities on the shows, you know, like they're, now when they're putting out castings or, or, you know, gig lists, I almost feel sorry for straight white men now because they're getting pushed out of the scene. Because, you know, sorry, we have to have X number of women. We have to have this uh, people with this type of sexual preference on the show now and these minorities. It just seems weird to me that you want to claim diversity, yet there's always somebody getting pushed out of the equation, it seems like. And so it's really difficult to find that balance, I guess. Yeah, that's, and that's sort of been what I've seen anyway. And I guess as well, something else that would be make it more diverse is wheelchair ramps in every venue. Right. Well, that be yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. As far as in actual, yeah, physicality and yeah, I mean, if you've got one step into your venue, please, one step is you know, but it's a mountain for somebody in a wheelchair. So yeah, invest in a wheelchair, in a ramp, or you know, get something made like a wedge. You know, it's not that difficult, but yeah, people just yeah, they don't want to think about it. Thank you. That's brilliant. Um, I think, Sophie, have you got anything you wanted to pick up? Um, yeah, maybe. I guess the thing, because it's so um, it's so prevalent in the kind of discourse around comedy, the idea that the straight white guys kind of getting elbowed out because you have to have a certain number of women or, OK, well, let, let's talk about women because that's a kind of a very kind of easy one that we, we might say, OK, half the population are women. So if you're saying half the bill should be women, then you're only talking about balancing out to to the population so I don't know what do you what do you think about that side of it that basically if we're going to have something that's more representative of the community off stage there are going to be some people who have to give up their space on stage yeah I mean this is it I mean this, this is there's ebbs and flows right I mean the tides always change they go one way and then they swing back right it swings and roundabouts so you know um yeah, the world is changing and I know we have to adapt. And I mean, you know, I just, yeah, there's got to be a balance. But yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I'll be dead. So. <laughs> <laughs> that was Tanya Lee Davis. And what an exit line. <laughs> She'll be dead. <laughs> right. A feel good ending, I like yeah. to think. 
I think like that joke is really significant um, in just showing how difficult some of these issues are. I mean, although I kind of articulated it in terms of if someone's going to have space, someone else is going to have to give up that space. I mean, actually, I, I don't quite agree with that. I don't think there's a limited space for people in the comedy world. I think it, it grows um, to accommodate everything because there's it seems there will always be an audience and a fresh audience for comedy um but yeah it's it sort of goes to show these things can be tricky and particularly tricky to work out on the ground right so you and I are academics we sit in our offices and work things out on paper largely but you know working things out out in the live space is tricky and I think um that's really clear with how Tanya Lee talks about her experience of disability and and her experience of being disabled in the UK in particular where it's awful to hear that there's the problem of people just not wanting to look at or discuss her disability Um, but also just wonderful to think how important it is then that she's out being so visible and joyous and fantastic on stage. Yeah, I think for me, uh, the takeaway would be that the barriers to diversity can be literal physical barriers. Mm. So, you know, when she talks about being carried upstairs and things like that and it sort of injuring her body, I mean, that (laughs) indicates the cost involved in in being somebody who has physical disabilities, which makes physical access difficult. Also, the kind of resourcefulness and ingeniousness with which she kind of faced that problem by, you know, getting a little chair that she can sit on and then that can go on a table, which then means she's visible, people can see her whole body. And then that allowed her to develop this sort of physical style of comedy. She's a very physical performer. And also, it was quite an interesting thing that's sort of surprising to me in a way that she acknowledged that as a little person that she was interesting to look at. We have interesting bodies to look at. And in some ways, you know, no different from any other comedian because comedians' physicality, I would argue, is part of their appeal, whether they know it or not. You know, we like the way they move, the way they stand, how they dress, what they do with their face, the sound of their voice, that kind of thing. And for her to have such a kind of handle on the appeal of her act is is really interesting. Yeah, I think as well... Um... I was really struck by her talking about the extra things that she has to do and that extra layer of admin to make sure that she can get to the gig, get into the gig. I mean, that's, she's got an extra day there of admin that the same pay um, as somebody who hasn't got to do all of that is receiving for what they're doing. But I just to return what I said before the podcast, I think the most important in a way thing that Tanya Lee Uh, sort of gives us when she talks about her work is this idea of the unstoppable me and of just being really funny and celebratory um, about her experience and as she says her brilliant life yeah also you once said to me that nobody goes into stand-up because they enjoy admin so (laughs) the cost of admin very true very true the cost of admin is not inconsiderable if you've got to do more of it Thanks for listening to the Stand-Up Diversity Podcast. Produced at the University of Kent with support from the participatory and co-produced research fund. Hosted by Oliver Double and Sophie Quirk. Editing and music by Anki Dams. So you're telling me, a like and subscribe? Diversity is a theme. For the Stand Up Diversity Podcast.